Thank you that you demonstrated that love by becoming our substitute, taking our place, dying for us, and that you were willing to do that because of your great love for us. Thank you that that plan of salvation, that rescue mission that you undertook was perfect, that it was complete, that it lacked nothing. There was nothing that needed to be contributed on our part. Our only role in the whole rescue plan was to be willing to accept by faith alone, by grace alone and Christ alone, your death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf, that gift of eternal life that you offered so freely. Pray that we would, knowing that that's the case, that we would live in light of it. We would never forget. We talk about things to never forget. Pray that we would never forget your sacrifice for us, that we'd wake up every morning refreshed and renewed and re-energized even to want to live lives that would bring you glory in recognition of that great sacrifice that you have had for us, that we would want our lives to count, that we would want to be lights for you, a reflection of you, so that people could be introduced to who you are and what you've done, both the unsaved and fellow believers in our lives, that we could be an encouragement to them. That when we gather, it would be for each other's benefit and not just a waste of time. Pray that we would be seeking to be used of you as an encouragement, as a way to be edifying to the body of believers, that each would even be prayerfully considering how you want to use them in the lives of others because the primary way you've chosen to minister to people is through people. Pray that we would be your hands and your feet, that we'd be ambassadors for you, that we would allow you to work in and through us so that you could accomplish your purposes for us and for the ages. Thank you for this time that we could spend together in your word. Pray that we would have hearts that want to learn and be refreshed by your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight, Lord willing, we're going to finish our mini-series that we've been doing on First Thessalonians chapter 4, or sorry, chapter 5, 14 through 25. 25. The title of this series has been We Exhort You. So this is part six, the sixth installment in this little mini-series as we've been working through this series of ex- exhortations that Paul chose to end this book with. And if you're thinking about this letter, I sh- should say, I guess is a better way of thinking about it. You can say the book of First Thessalonians, but it's a letter written by Paul to believers with a number of different encouraging instructions or exhortations that he chose to, again, end the letter with. So when we're thinking about this idea of we exhort you and then to go through a list of different things. Now we exhort you, brethren, he starts that in verse 14, and then he's gone on to have a list of 15 different exhortations, 14 of which we've already looked at. Now as we've brought out many different times. The purpose in all of this is instructions that are given in a loving kind of a way with a paternal flavor to them as Paul has the best interests of these believers in heart and as he is moved by the Holy Spirit to communicate these truths and to remind them of these instructions or things that would benefit them in living the Christian life, it's all from a perspective of this will allow you to thrive. Your heeding these instructions for your lives will both bring God glory and will benefit you in time. And the ultimate objective in all of it we're going to come to is that you would be set apart. You would be preserved blameless at the coming of Christ Jesus, if you wanted to paraphrase that, so that your life would be useful, that it would count, that it wouldn't be wasted 
that it would be a life that would be characterized by God working in and through you, and as that were true, that you would be an effective ambassador or minister for Jesus Christ to the lost and to the one and others that God put in your life by way of fellow believers that you would have the opportunity to interact with. So tonight we're going to be looking at, Lord willing, the final exhortation that is here. It's, we're going to find that in verse 25, but we have a couple of verses of buildup to get through in order to get to that. So let's unpack that. Turn, if you haven't, there to First Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to read this whole section again as we have been in these, the previous five lessons we've had here on this passage. But we'll pick up in verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, this is Paul and his ministry companions, warn those who are unruly. That was the first one. Comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Those were the positive ones. Do these things. Now, do not do these things. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but in the alternative, test all things. Determine what is true and what is not true. And then hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil are two options following that testing in verse 21a. Now, 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. And we'll jokingly look at the end of the chapter here. There's one more exhortation that I'm not going to go into it in any detail, but greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. That's also a present active imperative. That's the last one, actually. There's 16 in this section. And then he ends with the final closing. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And what a great way to end any letter, end any conversation with anyone, is again putting front and center the grace of God. There, that is the foundation on which we stand is God's grace. That is the foundation for all phases of salvation, whether it's justification, sanctification, or glorification, both positional sanctification, practical sanctification. It's all built on the foundation of God's grace, God doing for us what we don't deserve and what we could never do for ourselves. The foundation of it all right there. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. So as we unpack, backing up to verse 23, we'll, Lord willing, again, get through these last bits. So we start there with a prayer, my prayer for you. That's how you could look at verse 23. Paul has a prayer. He begins his closing remarks or conclusion of his letter here, but he does it by expressing his prayer, desire, or wish for these believers. Some people, I saw a number of different, at least two, commentators that I was reading their thoughts on this verse, they refer to it as prayer wishes, Paul's prayer wishes. Because on one hand, when you see, now may the God of peace, that's 
who would he be communicating that to? Well, to them, but also that's his desire and prayer for them. It reflects his posture or his attitude or mentality about his objective or goal or hopes for them, wishes for them. So prayer wish is a way of thinking of when he says that word may. And if you're, I had even been thinking about doing a, a series on Paul's prayers. We'll see if we get to that. But that's how you, a lot of them are identified with that word may. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it represents the desired general objective or outcome that flows from the practical application of the various specific exhortations that we've been going through. These exhortations or instructions for the well-being of the, these believers, he gave them specifics. At times, specifics are necessary. Because when you hear specific instruction that is a practical application of some general principle, then you're better able sometimes to take stock, think about your own life, consider your thinking, consider your behavior and ask, is that a reflection of something the Spirit of God would be producing in my life? So if this is God's will for you, and we know it is, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, certainly that would apply to every one of these present active imperatives. And if that is the case, and you were to take inventory and ask yourself, is how I'm thinking right now, is how I'm acting or my behavior right now, is it consistent with what a manifestation of God's Spirit would look like or involve? And so you would say, am I joyful right now? Go to just verse 16, am I joyful always? Well, God's word is telling us that an application, a practical appropriation of God's spirit leading the way or working or controlling or influencing my thinking at a present point in time, if that were true, true, then in that moment, I would be experiencing God's joy without ceasing or always. Same with praying without ceasing from verse 17. Do I have a heart that even has a desire to communicate with my Savior? Am I wanting to have an intimate relationship with Him? That's part one. Am I I even wanting that? Is that even my desire? That I want to have an intimate walk with Him, an intimate life with Him, be living life with Him and communicating with Him? Then perhaps that is my desire. The next question is, is that something that I'm allowing the Spirit of God to make true? Or make a reality in my life. Or actually then I'm taking the next step saying, not only do I want to know him, like Paul says, oh, that I may know him. Not only do I want to know him, I want to live life with him. I want to talk with him. I want to involve him in my day-to-day activities and my day-to-day thinking. Then, Lord, give me a heart that wants to speak to you. We say, word of God, speak to me. But do we have a prayer or a heart that says, God, give me a desire to want to communicate with you? to see the value in prayer, to be convinced that I could never possibly run out of things to pray for. And on and on you could go, but the point in all of this is that this is sort of a summary or a a more general statement of what the these other things were more specific applications or practical applications of a more general mindset. The more general mindset is, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, And may your whole entity, and we'll get into that in a second, be preserved blameless until Christ returns. So there's that's the general part of it. And then there was all of these specific 
exhortations that are different examples of what a spirit-led life might be characterized by. And so that's what we're getting into here is we started kind of with the specifics and now we're looking a little bit more at a general objective that Paul is praying for or wishing or desiring for these believers' life. Now, Paul also inserts this as a needed reminder of the power source behind any Christ-honoring manner of living. To remind them of the power source behind any spiritual success in their lives. It would be easy when you see lists of things, instructions, it would be easy to start focusing on performance and obedience and pumping that out through your own means, through your own strength. And so this is a nice way to, for Paul to have said all these things. Warn those, so instructions. Warn those, comfort those, uphold those. Don't render evil for evil. Pursue what is good. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. Don't quench, don't despise, test all these things, hold fast, abstain, and you have all of that. So the temptation could be, okay, man, wow, what a list of, what a list of things. How is that going to ever be possible? I'm going to have to get to work for Jesus to somehow make these things true of myself. And Paul says, hold up, hold up a second, though, but remember as I conclude my remarks, remember that it's ultimately going to be God who is going to empower this and make this possible and that's what he's getting at that's that's why this is inserted here in my in my opinion that is why this is here on the heels of all of these very specific instructions so then we see that there's two separate prayers or wishes that Paul communicates and the first one is may the god of peace sanctify you completely so when we look at that god of peace what a fun way to think about god or to even describe god and it refers to God as the source of both positional and practical peace. And as I look out tonight, I, this won't come as any new information to the vast majority of you who are here, but just by way of review, if God is the source of positional and practical peace, what are we talking about? Well, positionally, God provides the solution for ending the hostility associated with mankind's rebellious estrangement from him and restoring a state of harmony. So when you're thinking about peace in terms of a conflict, there was this state of estrangement or this period of hostility that was associated with man's rejection of God's truth. And so you can describe that as Adam's fall, the fall of man, the, sin, the curse of sin, and then the effect that that had on all of mankind, where there was this estrangement brought about as a result of man's desire to substitute Satan's lies for God's truth. So in a positional sense, there was that hostility with God or this estrangement from God or this separation from God on the basis of man's identification now with the race of Adam and being identified as sinners. So God provided a way to have peace with God. He had a plan of redemption and if you want to turn to Romans chapter 5, we'll see how Paul describes that process or that type of peace that God brings as, the peace, as being peace with God. Peace with God. But Romans chapter 5 verse 1 is the most famous verse about that. And this is really important truth here. Talking about or understanding the idea that it's a God of peace, but to have peace the peace of God in your day-to-day -day life, you have to first have the peace of God. 
or peace, sorry, peace with God. And so Romans 5.1, therefore, having been or since we have been justified by faith, how can a person, how can a sinner ever be found to be in a right standing with a holy God? Only on one basis, on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ on his behalf and his personal acceptance of that reality so, such that that would be applied to his account. Faith alone is the way that a man can accept the gift of eternal life that God offers. Now, by faith we're justified. We're put in a right standing with a holy God on the basis of the substitutionary work of his son. But because of that process where Christ became sin for us, where there was that great exchange made where all of man's sin was laid on him, and he became the, the iniquity for us all. The iniquity of us all was placed on him, and he nailed that sin to the cross as he paid the debt that we owed. Now, as a result of that, there was this opportunity to now have peace with God. It says, we, as a result of that justification made possible through Christ, we have peace with God, and then through our Lord Jesus Christ, making it very clear that that's the only way that a sinful man could ever be brought into harmony with God. It's got to be on the basis of somebody doing for us what we could never do for ourselves, and we understand that that is the gospel message in terms of God's provision for man's sin. But then practically, when you're talking about a God of peace, he made it possible for us to experience positional peace with God, but then he also made it possible for, uh, for us as children of God to experience the peace of God. So practically, when the believer presently enjoys or rests in God, he or she experiences peace in the sense of present tranquility or freedom from disturbance. This idea that I'm in a right standing with God, not, not positionally, we just talked about that, but practically, I'm operating in a place of union or fellowship with God, a place where I'm restored to a present, practical, day-to-day relationship with Him. Now, that's made possible, too. And it's made possible by God, again, providing for us this opportunity to experience this peace that passes all understanding, to experience his peace, the peace of God, this restfulness, though, this tranquility, this freedom from a disturbed mind. How, do, how many of you are struggling with a disturbed mind tonight, a disquieted mind, a restless mind? I've certainly struggled with that plenty of times in my life. One of the ways I know that I'm struggling with some of those things is sometimes my eyelid will start twitching a little bit. That's not a good sign. That's a sign of anxiety, fatigue, stress. That's a sign of needing to rest, find and take a hold of practically appropriate by faith the peace of God that is possible to every Christian. When you find yourself agitated, stressed out, anxious, that's not God's spirit producing that in you. He says that the fruit of the Spirit, one of those things will be peace. Love, joy, peace. God's peace, tranquility, and inner quiet instead of being disquieted in your soul. What a wonderful thing. And it's made possible by God. It's God's provision. So he's a God of peace. A God described by being the one that's bringing positional peace and practical peace to our lives. And so Philippians 4, 7 says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all, I would insert, human understanding, will guard your hearts and minds 
through Christ Jesus. I love that Paul, at the end of both of those phrases, both positional peace and practical peace, he says, through Christ Jesus, he says, the Lord Jesus Christ in, in Romans 5.1, but in Philippians 4.7, now discussing the peace of God, he says, through Christ Jesus. Friends, the way that we live the Christian life is exactly the same way that we get saved. Sometimes we try to, we're conned by the evil one or our own human wisdom into believing that it's different. It's not different. It's a faith rest life. It's depending on God to bring about changes in our lives, to direct in our lives, to undertake in our lives, to empower our lives through the power of his spirit in a way we never could. There's nothing that we could contribute to our justification. There's nothing we can contribute to our progressive sanctification, practical sanctification, however you want to describe that process over time of growing in our faith. Nothing we can contribute. Apart from him working in and through us, that's not even going to be possible. So that's why he says, may the God of peace do this. And he's going to say, sanctify you completely. This isn't you that's going to do that. So let's move on to that phrase, sanctify you completely. May the God of peace, this is my prayer wish for you, that the God of peace would sanctify you completely. And we define sanctify as to consecrate, make holy or set apart. The most common one I heard over the years is set apart. To be sanctified is to be set apart. And the focus of this is progressive practical sanctification. This idea of sanctifying you completely, that's not going to happen on this side of eternity. But the power or the victory has been won. The opportunity to have victory is present. It's theoretically possible. In the sense that every moment that we walk by faith as a moment by moment, in moment by moment dependence on him to work in and through us. And we keep, every moment that we choose to fix our gaze on him, align our eyes with the author and finisher of our faith, we will, in that moment, be guaranteed to experience that sanctification that God wants to be true of us. The, that setting apart, consecrating, being made holy not making ourselves holy, but being made holy by God working in and through us to change us over time, to transform us into the image of his son. Now, again, why is this inserted here? Again, because it's a general summary of the general objective in this. And again, it's to remind us that the source for making this possible is God alone. Now, where do you get that? Because if you just take, may God, take out the of peace, but may God, sanctify you, and then we add completely. It's God who does the sanctifying. God is interested in transforming you. But that's not, a, that's not enough. God isn't just in, interested in transforming some of you, setting apart some of you for his use. He wants you to be a willing and available and open vessel that's completely set apart. And so that's where we get such a fun word. He's interested in transforming every single part of you as, com- as communicated with that word completely. And as, as with so many of the things in the word of God in general, but in this section, there's no wiggle room in this. It's, it's written in terms of absolutes. And I'm not going to go through them all again, but there were so many of them, right? Always, without ceasing, in everything. Test all things. Abstain from every 
So these are all terms of certainty or terms of absolutes. So there you have another one here, completely. Paul is praying that God would sanctify or set apart these believers to himself in every area of their life. In every area of their life. And, and, And think about that. If God's general objective is that he would be able to set us apart completely in every facet of our lives, is that desire on God's part compatible with our human perspective where in general we say, God, I am willing to let you make some changes because even I see what a train wreck my life becomes on my own when I'm directing my own paths and my own steps. I see that. And so I've decided I'm going to allow you to make a few renovations in my life. I'm not going to allow you to destroy what was there that was absolutely useless and build it back up in a transforming kind of a way, but I'm going to allow you to make a few superficial surface level changes in my life. Isn't, isn't that goofy, but isn't that true how we think about things? The fact of the matter is that the whole thing needs to be torn down and we're saying, nah, it can be salvaged. Just slap another, I'll just let God slap another coat of paint on the outside. But the whole thing is rotten. Rotten to the very core. God doesn't want, he's not interested in making a few external superficial changes. He's not satisfied with you making yourself available for the master's use in some ways, but then holding back in others. Now, he knows that that is the curse of humanity. Our human thinking, our human wisdom, our flesh would generally lead us in that way because to describe a sin nature is just to say simply, a me-first attitude. That me-first attitude ultimately is always going to hold back or try to hold back on things that God says, I don't want some of you, I want all of you. And so that's what maturity or maturing in the faith looks like. It's coming to realize over time the different areas that we really weren't giving over to the Lord, where we really weren't trusting Him, where we really weren't allowing Him to have His way in our lives. And the thing about immaturity is that A sign of immaturity is you can't even realize or recognize that you're doing that. We are self-deceived too often. We convince ourselves that things are better than they are too often. The reality is that even Paul was quick to admit, I have not attained, I have not arrived. I'm a work in progress. God still needs to make changes in me. And he needs to make changes in you too. And one of the starting points is to have a desire to allow him to make all of those changes. That starts with wanting to have your mind permeated by his will. So even making a choice to be here tonight, that's an an example, though it could be done in the flesh too, but it's an example of having a desire to want to hear God's word to take time out of a very hectic and busy life to have some spiritual viewpoint inserted into that thinking, to have that opportunity to permeate your mind and your thinking, to renew your mind through the Word of God. Now, there's many other things that could be good or even feel like they needed to be done besides this. 
But this is how God is wanting to make those changes, not partially, but completely. It involves growing over time. And I'll say this as I was thinking about being sanctified completely and a process over time or growing over time. I couldn't help but think growth also involves moving forward. Being sanctified or this process of being set apart completely cannot be done while focusing on yesterday. Not the successes of yesterday or the failures of yesterday. It can only be achieved, and that almost implies that you're doing it, but it, it can only be successful if you're looking forward and pressing forward and saying, I can't change that anymore. Now I have to move forward and let the Lord have his way with my next moment and my next moment and my next moment and my next moment after that. But it involves moving forward. Now, this is God's will for you. There's nothing ambiguous about this. It's God's will that he would sanctify you completely. And we make every excuse in the book for why there's something better. We, there's a better plan for our lives. We know better for our life. We can better optimize or make use of our lives. We don't need God to do that. It's God's will that you would be set apart and sanctified completely, and he doesn't communicate that in a, in a way that is open to flexing. And it's communicated often in God's Word. I want to show you just two examples right here in this letter. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, because Paul has already talked about this being an objective of God's for your life in the third chapter. If you turn back just one page there, well, however many pages it is in your Bible, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, let's look at verses 12 and 13. And here you have that language of a prayer or wish, prayer wish. And may... Now we have verse 11. Now may. So these are Paul's desire communicated as prayer wishes. But and may the Lord make you. Now notice who's doing the changing. Who's doing the working. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all. Just as we do to you. Jesus tells his disciples, my objective for you is that you would love one another as I have loved you. So that... For with what objective in mind? So that he may, who's doing the work, he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Almost identical language. This idea of being blameless in holiness, that's talking about being sanctified to make something holy or make someone holy. That idea of being set apart. And so, consecrating something. There's one example. Then turn to the fourth chapter. For me, it's one page turn, but chapter 4, verse 3. Now he's getting into a section about sexual immorality. He gets into some specifics, but the general objective, just to remind you that this is just Paul restating the more general objective of God. In verse 3, for this is the will of God. What is the will of God? This is the will of God, your sanctification. That's God's will. He wants to set you apart. He wants to use you. He wants to transform you. He wants to conform you into the image of His Son. He wants to get rid of 
what you used to be and make you into something that is entirely new, not just positionally, but practically as he makes those changes in your life. Now, that's obviously going to involve having to trust him or learning to trust him, trust that he knows better, and letting him lead. It's going to also require a recognition that without you, I can do nothing. I can't sanctify myself. I'm going to need you to bring about these changes in my life. So one, do I want that? Two, do I recognize I can't do this? And three, am I going to effectively depend on him to make these changes in me by keeping my focus on him and allowing him to work in and through me to make me more like himself? Now, all of these imperative instructions listed previously, they're given with this ultimate objective in mind. So we said that before, but this is the objective. If you are being set apart, If you are being consecrated or if God is making you holy in a practical way, these other things would be true. These would be true. You would be warning those, comforting those, upholding, seeing that no one renders evil for evil, pursuing what is good, rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and everything giving thanks. That that would be a natural byproduct of this occupation with Jesus Christ and this yieldedness to the power of the Spirit of God making changes and working in your life, yielding to Him, letting Him have His way, walking by means of, in dependence on, God's Spirit to produce in you a godly manner of living. That would be true. You would, as you are being sanctified by God through letting Him have His way with you, that's the positive volitional part of this, choosing to allow him to make those changes or give him access to that. And as that happens, God will do that. It will result in you being sanctified and then there will be these specific manifestations of that in your life. Now, what's the next part of Paul's prayer wish? The second part of this starts again with may. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in some ways saying the same thing. To be preserved blameless is very similar to this idea of being sanctified completely. But to be preserved blameless. Now this represents an expansion. So it's not an entirely new idea. It's an expansion of the first prayer wish. So whole spirit, soul, and body refers to the complete human being. The complete human being. The spirit is the highest and most unique part of man that enables him to communicate with God. That's what the spirit is. The soul is the part of man that makes him, makes him conscious of himself. It's the seat of his personality. We say conscience, intellect, emotion, volition, those things fall within that purview of the soul of man. The body, of course, is the physical part through which the inner person expresses himself and by which he is immediately recognized. People recognize your external self, the body of man. So your body, soul, and spirit. But may your whole, the idea there is your complete being. May your complete being be preserved blameless. So preserved, it has the idea of being observed, guarded, or kept. May your whole spirit be preserved. Now, who is producing that action? God is again producing that action. God is sanctifying you. You're being sanctified by an external source. You're being preserved blameless by an external power source. So you're being guarded or kept 
by God himself, because in the context, that's who we're talking about. May the God of peace do this. May the God of peace himself do what? Two things, sanctify you and preserve you blameless. Now, isn't there a lot of comfort in thinking about that? That ultimately, that's God's power. That's God's part of this, that God is going to be undertaking to do that if I will just fix my eyes on him, just trust him, just walk by faith, have dependence on him to do for me what I cannot do for myself. Now he'll preserve me blameless in a manner that's free from guilt and above reproach. Literally, with, you could say, with no legitimate ground for accusation. Now that's true positionally. Satan wants to accuse the believer and Jesus effectively as our intercessory, as our intermediary. says, I died for that though. And I died for that. And I died for that. And I died for that. And positionally, we're blameless in that sense. But in this context, I believe the focus is more on Christian living. That he'll present us blameless or preserve us blameless until the Lord comes back again. So that we would be guarded or kept in a manner that's free from guilt and above reproach. Until what time? For how long? Well, until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The rest of your life, every minute of every day until the Lord returns. That's how long. Now, what would the benefit of that be? Of the God of peace preserving you blameless until he comes back again, until Christ comes back again. Well, Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. One benefit, there's at least two I can think of, maybe you could think of more. One is that in that interim, you'd be a favorable testimony for Christ in time. That you'd be a favorable testimony for Christ. Because as he sanctifies you and sets you apart, what will that mean practically? That will mean that you, others can see Christ in you. You would have a witness for Jesus Christ that would be effective. As you're set apart, what does that mean? You're distinct from the homogenous world around us. You're pulled out from that. You're consecrated, meaning set apart from that, distinct from that. And as you're distinct from that, can people see that difference? If, if you're a reflection of him, is that going to fit in very well to a crooked and perverse and dark world? Does the light fit in with the darkness? Man, every day just remind yourself, just like I remind myself, I try to remind my, my children, my purpose here is not to fit into this world. It's to be a light for Jesus. My daughter is so sick of hearing that. But I drop her off for anything. And I say, Dallas, you are not here to fit in. You are here with a purpose to be a light for Jesus. So whatever it is that you're about to go do, do it in a way that you can be a reflection of his light as you go into whatever space that's going to be. Whether it's an activity, it's on the job, it's out at doing some errands. Whatever, wherever you go within this world that we're, 
we're in this world, but we're not of this world. So wherever you go in this world, can you do it in a way where your primary objective isn't to be accepted and to fit into the lost and dying world around you, but instead to be a stark contrast to that as a light for Jesus? And can you be a light for Jesus as you're driving down the highway? Yeah, you can. How, how could you do that in an observable way? Well, maybe wave the guy in front of you instead of shouting out your window, trying to think of something that wouldn't be too extreme. None of you would do that anyway. But instead of road raging, maybe being courteous to others around you. A small little thing. As you go about your day, there's plenty of opportunities to do it in a way that would shine the light on Jesus. But in First Thessalonians chapter 2 here, I want you to see an example of this in Paul's life. Pick up in verse 10. He's talking about his own behavior, his own, his own way of dealing with them. But then he says to them, you are witnesses. Witnesses of what? Witnesses of my behavior, how we interacted with you. You are witnesses in God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. He's talking about the benefit of being preserved blameless as a testimony to the lives of others, and in this case, other believers. Now, as you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, so there's a sense of a, in a loving and nurturing kind of a way, that you would, what did, we, what did he desire or preach to them? That they would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What, is, what does that mean? If he calls you into his kingdom, what does he call you out of? This world. Something, I have something different from, for you. Jesus come, came along to numerous individuals and as he interacted with them, he said, what you're doing isn't necessarily wrong. What you're doing isn't necessarily useless, but I've got something better for you. I've got something more important for you. I have a higher purpose and a higher calling for you. Will you follow me? Will you proclaim me? Will you reflect me? Will you be a witness for me? Will you be an ambassador for me? So there's one benefit in time. Then how about favor, a favor, so that's a favorable testimony for Christ in time. The other thing in terms of what benefit would this be to be preserved blameless? How about a favorable Bema evaluation or judgment seat of Christ evaluation in the future? That'd be a great benefit. Talk about the doctrine of rewards. You can read it about, on, about it in our doctrinal statement if you want to read a little bit more expansive discussion about that. But this idea that there's going to be an evaluation and there'll be rewards that are given to those who are willing to trust the Lord in time and let him work in their lives. Now we move on to verse 24 here. So we had in verse 23, Paul's prayer for these believers or my prayer for you. Now we have God's promises to you he wants to remind them of too. On the heels of again, 14 different present active imperatives. Now he wants to remind them of God's promises to them. So we'll turn back here to verse 24. He who calls you, 
He's just getting done saying, my prayer for you is that you would be sanctified completely and preserved blameless until the day the Lord comes back. Now he says, he who calls you is faithful who also will do it. And I just love this sort of inserting of that idea or that thought here on the heels of that general statement of what the objective in all of this has been for Paul to communicate these various truths to them. You see, those Thessalonians aware of their own human limitations might well have wondered how they could be kept blameless until the coming of Christ. He's saying the objective in all this is that you would be sanctified completely and that you would be preserved blameless until Christ comes back. Now, if you heard that that was God's desire for your life and you were an individual who was newly saved, maybe even if it, as an individual who's been saved a long time, you might naturally say, how in the world would that ever be possible? I'm a screw-up. I never get it right. There's been nothing that has been set apart about me in a continuous kind of a way or in a ongoing kind of a way. That, that doesn't char- those, those descriptions don't characterize my life up to this point. And you're saying that those are God's objectives for my life until Christ returns. So then Paul naturally throws in this section here about what is the key to all of this? How is that going to be possible? How could that be possible? The reason it hasn't been true in your life is because you haven't been trusting the Lord. You haven't been allowing Him to make this true in your life as you would yield independence, have this, spirit, this attitude of dependence on Him to do this to make these changes in you. As you were willing to get your eyes off of yourself and your surroundings and your circumstances and get them onto a more vertical plane instead of the horizontal, then God could make these changes. But it's God ultimately who wants to do this, but it's also God who does it. It's his power that makes this possible. So Paul inserts this key reminder that this is all going to be God's faithfulness that makes this possible in your life. See, faithfulness is the characteristic of God that determines that he will do the very thing Paul has prayed for. You see, it says calls, and that carries the idea of assigning or inviting or appointing to a task. So he who calls you, calls you to what? Calls you to this general existence of complete sanctification and being preserved blameless. His objective, his ultimate objective for your Christian life. Now, he who calls that or assigns, assigns that, invites, appoints that as the objective in your life, he'll do it. He'll be faithful to do it if you'll just trust him. You see, God invites believers to a manner of living that he empowers or makes possible. And God is the one who's faithful to bring to completion the work he has begun in believers' lives. Philippians 1.6, many of you are very familiar with it. It says, being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And then if you were, would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, get some more page turning here, we see Paul talk about this faithfulness of God as the key to success in Christian living as he continuously reminds them of these principles, but he does it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 2. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 4. We talk about Paul's prayer wishes. Here's another one. 
He says, I thank my God. What is that talking about? A prayer. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. I'm thankful that you have been empowered by God's grace, that God, you were the benefactors of God's grace in the past, positionally, and in time, practically. That you were enriched in everything by Him. Who did the enriching? The same person who does the sanctifying, the same one who does the preserving blameless, the God of all peace. That's who. God Himself. You were enriched in everything by Him, in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, through you is the idea there, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you looking forward to that? Do you have an earnest expectation of the Lord's return? Now, listen to this description of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who's doing the work? Who's making this possible? What a wonderful insertion, inserting, uh, whatever you would say here, what a wonderful thing to insert here on the heels of that general objective for Christian living. He who calls you is the one who's faithful and also will do it. You see, the Christian life is centered on God's gracious provision for man apart from work in all phases of salvation, past, present, and future. It's God's gracious provision for man apart from human effort that makes this possible. And Paul reminds the Galatian believers to not be goofy about somehow believing that they're now going to live the Christian life in a way that's different from how they got saved to begin with. In Galatians 3.3, Paul says, are you so foolish? Are you so foolish? He says to them, he's saying it to us today, tonight. Are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Being made perfect, this process of spiritual growth, sanctification, practical or a Yeah, practical sanctification, or progressive is the word I was looking for, another way of describing the same thing. This progressive sanctification being made, this process over time, are you being made perfect in the flesh? Somehow you're going to make yourself sanctified completely? You're going to somehow preserve yourself blameless? No, I don't think so. No, he says in verse 24 here, he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Then we move on to the last present active imperative, our 15th one. Brethren, pray for us. Paul's appeal for prayer was to those he regarded as his brothers. I love that he starts with that brethren. Not just random people. I'm writing you this very personal letter with this very paternal flavor to it. And now I'm saying brethren, pray for us. The appeal is to his brothers in Christ. And doubtless much of the success in his missionary work could be attributed to the prayers of the Thessalonians and other believers. Paul understood that. He wasn't taking credit for any successes that were being done through him as God worked in and through him. He was careful to give God the glory. To God be the glory, great things he has done. That mentality was present in Paul who says, I'm not sufficient as a minister of anything. My sufficiency and your sufficiency ultimately is from God. And Paul understood the power of prayer. He requested this repeatedly. Here's some that I'm just going to remind you of. But here's one, obviously, in verse 25 of 
1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But then how about 2 Thessalonians 3.1? He says, finally, brethren again, pray for us. Pray what about? Pray for what? That the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. To the Roman believers in chapter 15, verse 30, he says this. Let's turn to that one. This one is powerful. They're all powerful, but he again uses brethren. He reminds them, I'm asking you, brother. Brother, I'm asking you to do this. Pray for us. But he says it differently here in Romans 15, verse 30. Sometimes seeing it with your own eyes is more impactful than me reading it. Brethren, pray for us. But in Romans fifteen thirty, really powerful. All right, it says this. Now I beg you. I beg you. Just like I, we exhort you. We beg you. Now I beg you, brethren. My brothers and sisters, I beg you. Through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, who's going to produce this? The Spirit. That you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. What, a, what an interesting verse. I beg you that you strive together with me. That means I'm praying for myself and I'm asking you to pray for me. But he could have, he, he, and he does solicit prayers for a lot of different other things too. But he's saying, I'm begging you that you would pray with me for me. Pray for me. Brethren, pray for us. 2 Corinthians 1.11, he says, you also helping together in prayer for us. It's helpful that you're praying for us. That thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. In Colossians 4.3, he says, meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. So brethren, pray for us. It indicates that us indicates that Paul's requesting prayer not just for himself, but for this ministry team, these others that are his fellow workers in Christ. And I brought it out before, but I'll remind you again tonight. There's very few instances you could find, if any, where Paul is operating as a lone wolf where he's operating independent of a mission team or other people that he's involved in missions with. That he's, that he's not giving reports back to other people who are supporting him along the way. Some people have that perspective that Paul's just out doing all this on his own by himself. It's not a part of a collective effort. No, it's a part of a collective effort. In terms of those that are ministering with him and those who are supporting him financially and prayerfully, and you're seeing it even here in his request for pray, prayer, but pray for us. Friends, I hope you're praying for me. I hope you're praying for each other. There's no amount of prayer that could be too much for me or for yourself or for others. There's not any amount that could be too much. We can't miss this. We could have, you know, it falls after these general observations and this reminder of the power source behind all of this. It falls after that just kind of as a it's almost thrown in there at the very conclusion, but it's not something that should be thought of as an afterthought. Pray for us, brothers. Pray for me, brothers and sisters. And then he has, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. The, the acceptable alternative, of course, might be a hug or a pat on the back or a handshake. I'm open to all of those. 
And then he ends by, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You see, God through Paul is encouraging you to heed these instructions. Why? For your spiritual good and for his glory. These behaviors are characteristic of spirit-directed lives, lives that are set apart, lives that lift him up. That is the kind of life every believer is called or invited to, the kind of life that lifts him up, the kind of life that's empowered by him, the kind of life that's a reflection of him. That's the kind of life that God wants for you. So the question is, will you respond in faith and allow the Spirit to produce this manner of living in you? These kinds of characteristics, these kinds of things that the Spirit of God naturally wants to be true of you. Will you trust God enough? Will you allow Him to work through the power of His Spirit in you to make these things true in your life? You know, you think about the purpose of this mini-series. God has all of these instructions for our benefit All of these directions for our lives that are intended to help us thrive, to not miss out on what is the point in all of this, to remind us that there is a point, that God does have a plan for your life. And it's been a great reminder going through them. But this is the only way letting the Spirit, a Spirit-led, Christ-focused life is the only way that you're going to experience life the way God has intended for you. And I'll tell you what, the life that God planned for you it always represents the best life possible. You know, there's a book, popular book, that Your Best Life Now. I don't know if you've heard of it. Your Best Life Now, Your Best Life Then, Your Best Life in the Future, it's the life God had planned for you. That's the best life possible. But it takes trusting Him, allowing the one who's faithful to produce that manner of living in you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for this time we've been able to spend in this little mini-series of exhortations that Paul chose to end 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, or 1 Thessalonians letter, the letter to the Thessalonians. Thank you that we've been able to pull some nuggets out of there, have some reminders in there, be encouraged, I hope, be uplifted, be convicted about some of these things. Pray that we'd get our eyes off of our circumstances, off ourselves, that we would walk by means of your spirit, get our, keep our focus and our gaze fixed on you knowing that you have an amazing life planned for us, but it's ultimately a life that lifts you up. It's a life that puts the spotlight on you. It means death to self, and it means being alive in you, as you are the one that wants to transform us completely, not just in part, but completely. Pray that that would have been something that resonated with us as we looked at this passage. In Jesus' name, amen.